G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. The body dies and decomposes, but the soul is made to live forever. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. We're continuing in the Tall Order series about the importance of walking across the room and starting conversations, building relationships with those in our circles to share in deeper spiritual conversations. With this in mind, today we'll explore the idea of hell. Is it a real place and should I care? Because in effect, here's what he's going to do. He's going to paint a picture for you what it looks like if you go into a Christless eternity. What life is going to be like if you enter eternity without Christ? This is Today with Jeff Vines. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Luke 16, 19. And while you're trying to find that, my wife, when she hears this this weekend, I'm sure is going to be frustrated. Oh no, you're going to talk about the old days again. Why don't you just get over it and move on? But I had a friend in high school. Uh, we spent a lot of time together. We, we were the post players on the basketball team. You know, we ran the old shuffle offense. We didn't have a big guy, a true big guy, so we didn't have a center. So we ran the, the point guard, shooting guard, three guard, and two postmen. We spread it out on the wings and tried to get the defense spread out, and then we'd run those little pick and rolls and the shuffle offense. It was great. But we post players, we stayed together. We protected each other. And so my friend and I spent a lot of time together just hanging out, uh, even after graduation, played in slow pitch softball leagues and basketball games together and traveled a lot together. Uh, this is before I was married, obviously, uh, before I'd even met Robin. So I had a lot of free time. And uh, so you're, we're just seeing the world together, participating in all kinds of sports, athletics. We were very different though. A lot of similarities, but a lot of differences. He would ask me to pray. He knew I was uh, uh, religious in his quotations. So he would ask me to pray uh, just in case there was a God, we wanted him involved in the basketball or the softball game. And uh, he, we just, we, you know, we just, we'd just hang out and be together. Uh, he liked a lot of things I didn't like. He liked beer, women, and uh, well, not that I don't like women. That didn't come out right. But <laughs> he liked a lot of beer, a lot of women, and drugs occasionally. And it was amazing. He, he tried not to use bad language around me, which I appreciated, which today I found out doesn't make a difference. You tell a guy you're a pastor today, that doesn't change anything. Back then, I had a little respect. You know, I, I bring that story up because as much time as we spent, and I was thinking about that this week, I never walked across the room with him. Not once. Now, for those of you who are visiting, we've been talking about walking across the room that if, if we would just realize the story that we have, testimony that we have in our lives, if we would just get a little bit more passionate about walking across the room at the office or the gymnasium or at school or the cafe or the restaurant we frequent and just starting conversations with people, 
that they would lead ultimately to spiritual conversations that we could share with them why it is that we have this hope and what the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ has done with our lives. But because we don't walk across the room, there are so many people who'll never know. And I spent so much time with this guy, I never once walked across the room. If you were to ask me why, my answer would be, I don't know. But I really wish I had. Because a few years later, I would meet Robin and we would go to Africa as missionaries we hadn't even arrived in Zimbabwe yet. We were in Johannesburg, South Africa, staying at the Baptist guest house. And back then, before email, you actually had to use the telephone. You know what the telephone is? Not a cell phone. It's a thing that goes into the wall, has two big things. You put it one to your ear, one to your mouth, and you talk on it. And back then, if you were calling overseas, there was about a five-second delay. And so I just wanted to let my parents know I was all right. So I asked to use the phone at the Baptist guest house. I called my mom. My dad got on the phone. He said, son, I got some bad news for you. So what's that, dad? He says, you need to call your your friend's mother. I said, why? And he told me, your friend was killed in a car accident last night. And I remember vividly hanging up the phone and three questions started to emerge, just kind of saturate all my thoughts for the next few days. Where's my friend now? What is he doing? And if he could talk, what would he say to me? Now, I, I think it's uncanny that about that time, Someone had given me the book of Luke in a pamphlet to read. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be a missionary, I probably ought to read the Bible a little more. So I was starting to really study the scripture from a different standpoint than we had in Bible college. It was a personal thing now. And I'm reading through the book of Luke and somebody had given me an old Charles Stanley sermon called Christ from a Man in Torment based on Luke 16. I just, I just thought that really sparked, that was a catalytic moment in my life to catapult me on to a new way to a new feeling of evangelism, to the call of our role in the world. And what really bothered me is the answers Jesus would give me in Luke 16 for where is my friend now? What is he doing? And if he could talk, what would he ask me? Jesus answers them in a parable that he told. And I'm uncomfortable with his answers, even still today. And that's why I want to say to you, what I say today, if you've got a beef, it's not with me, it's with Jesus. So take it up with him and good luck with that. Don't shoot the messenger. And anytime somebody reminds me of high school basketball, anytime somebody says, hey, tell us about your career that has been that never was, I always remember my friend and I still ask those same three questions. But it, those are questions Jesus answers. Luke chapter 16, verse 19, here we go. Jesus says, there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. Jesus says, the man in the story is rich and he dresses in purple, which is the color of royalty, so he's very wealthy, and fine linen, those Greek words together, just really describe his underwear. That's right, Calvin Klein, he wore expensive underwear, this guy did, very wealthy. Joyously living in splendor every day. Again, those words there indicate that here's a man that every morning he got up, he had one objective, one goal, and that is to splurge, to live in the lap of luxury and find out what pleasure he could move to and from. One pleasure to the next pleasure. That was the attitude of his life. And there was a poor man named Lazarus. Now this is the only parable in the New Testament where Jesus actually gives a character in the parable a name. Usually it's, and then there was this sower who went out to sow. Then there was the vineyard keeper. Then there was a great wedding. But there are no names given. This parable, which causes many theologians to believe this is not a parable at all. It's a real story that Jesus is relating to the crowd. Either way, it's interesting. We're going to bring this back in later. The only parable where Jesus gives a character a name and the name is Lazarus. 
He was laid at his gate and he was covered with sores. Here's a man that was so helpless, probably a paralytic, that had to have his friends carry him on a mat and drop him at the palatial gate that fronted the palatial home of this wealthy man. And the Bible says also that he was longing to be fed or waiting to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Let me tell you about these crumbs. If you're wealthy, you got two loaves of bread on the table. You got the right loaf of bread, which is a higher grain, which you use to eat. They didn't have knives and forks and spoons back in those days. So you'd take this bread, break it apart and dip it into the meat or the sauce or the vegetables, whatever it is, and you would eat. There was a lesser grain on your left that was a loaf of barley bread. You'd take that bread if you were wealthy and you'd take it and break it apart and clean your hands of the dirt, the grease and the grime. And then you'd take that bread, throw it under the table to be thrown out as garbage. That is the bread the poor man Lazarus is waiting on. And he's laying at the gate waiting to be fed from the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. The Bible says, even the dogs were coming and licking his running sores. Jesus says this guy's so helpless, so dependent on somebody else that he can't even protect himself from the sores on his body that are now oozing, probably bed sores from not being able to turn and move, that the dogs that made their way up and down the streets of Jerusalem now were coming and licking his running sores. Verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Angels are God's ministering servants in the Bible. Matthew 18 tells us that they even watch over our children. But one of their primary responsibilities, according to the text, is that they issue your soul. When you die, your body goes into the ground, but your soul is escorted by the angels of God into the presence of God. And this man, poor man, was escorted into Abraham's bosom. Now, don't let that frighten you. That's just a Jewish term, terminology, because they believed that no one was closer to God in heaven than Abraham. He was God's man. So if you're close enough to Abraham to feel his heartbeat or in his bosom, that means you must be close to God. The point Jesus is making, this poor man died. He was carried by the angels into the presence of God. And the rich man, the Bible says, also died and was buried. Verse 23, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now here's what happens. Here's what Jesus is doing in the setup. He says there's two men who lived entirely different lives, but both men died. That's the commonality. They have contrasting destinations. What troubles me in this, what troubled me 23 years ago, what troubles me now is the way Jesus describes this second place. Because in effect, here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna paint a picture for you what it looks like if you go into a Christless eternity. What life is going to be like if you enter eternity without Christ. This is Today with Jeff Vines and his message, Is Hell a Real Place and Should I Care? The parable of the rich man and Lazarus shows us the soul is everlasting and therefore always aware. Let's continue with more from Luke chapter 16. What life is going to be like if you enter eternity without Christ. And he gives us this beautiful graphic picture. Number one, he says this. Now I said beautiful in the fact that it's descriptive. I didn't say I would enjoy it. But let me remind you again. If you have a beef, take it up with Jesus, not with me. I have tried so hard this week to not bring my presuppositions about hell into this passage, but just to allow the text to speak for itself. And the first thing it tells me is this, that hell is a place of awareness. Oliver Pillay in 1952 in the New York Post wrote an article. Title of the article was, How Does One Destroy Non-Material? Now think about this. In America, 1952, the article goes on to talk about how that if something is non-material, is indestructible. And then he says, imagine this in the liberal media, he says the only thing in the human experience that is indestructible, the only thing that is non-material is the soul. 
the essential you, that when you die, your body goes down in the grave. It is in decay, it rots. But the soul, the essential, the real you is not subject to decay because it is made to last forever. So whether you are with Christ or without Christ, you are going to live somewhere forever. Only the body dies, the soul lives because the soul is indestructible, it is non-material. That's why there's no Greek word in the Bible that means annihilation. Not even one that means to go out of existence. The most common Greek word is thanatos, which is a word that describes the separation of the soul from the body. Body goes down in the grave, it dies, it decomposes, but the soul never sleeps. It's always awake. It is immortal. It lives forever. That's why the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 said this, when this tent we live in, our body here on earth is torn down, God will have a house in heaven for us to live in a home he himself has made, which is lasting forever, which is indestructible, which will last forever. In other words, you're given a new body to fit the same soul, the essential you. Now this would have been in stark contrast to what the Jews knew before this time. This would have shaken the foundations of their world because all they knew up until this point, when you die, you go out into the Sheol, the Hebrew terminology for grave. As you go to the Greek terminology, you get Hades. You go down to the grave, that's it. And now Jesus is saying, you've missed the boat on this. That's not the way it is. The body dies and decomposes, but the soul is made to live forever. How do you destroy non-material? It lasts forever and you're aware. Your awareness never stops. You know where you are, your conscience, wherever your destination, Jesus is saying, you're very much aware of your surroundings. Let me say it again. Both the poor man and the rich man are awake. They know where they are. They experience and feel the pain or pleasure associated with their individual destinations. One is in constant comfort, the other in torment. Now, do you know what the worst thing about this place evidently is? Notice the request that the rich man makes. After he asks for a drop of water, he cries out to Father Abraham and he says, Father Abraham, please send somebody from the dead. Please send somebody from this place and go and tell them, warn my family, warn my sons and my daughters not to come to this place. He uses the word brothers, but this word really encompasses the entire family. You think about it. The Bible says that the intensity of pain is to such a degree that the only thing that could possibly make it worse was to have to see a son or a daughter suffer the same fate. You look at a mother when a mother has a daughter or a son who's suffering from leukemia or cancer and how this whole thing just drags the mother down. The love is so deep in her heart to see a love, to see a son or daughter suffer. There is no greater pain. Evidently, this place is so filled with pain. The intensity of the agony is so high. The only thing that could make it worse would be if you had a son or a daughter and you had to watch them suffer as well. No, do I like it? Absolutely not. Do I think it's real? Absolutely, I do. Why? Because Jesus said it is. It's his story. Number one, hell is a place of awareness. Number two, hell is a place of disintegration. Now, follow me here. In verse 24, the Bible says, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. I am in agony in this fire. As soon as Jesus uses fire, it tells me two things. The first is this. The intensity of the measure of pain is not describable. Same thing is true about heaven. Heaven is so great, so grand. The pleasure is immense. It is indescribable. No words or symbols in the human language will do it justice. But alternatively, the same is true about hell. 
No matter what imagery we give it, it will never be enough. I think it's interesting Jesus says in the story that the rich man, just to show you how his attitude hasn't changed, he still sees Lazarus as his servant. He says, send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. Now, if it's so bad, why not just ask for a 50-gallon drum of water to be dumped over your head? And the reason why is Jesus uses this type of imagery to show you that even one drop of water, the pain is so intense here that even one drop of water will mean some relief. That's why when somebody comes to me and says, Jeff, you're just so old-fashioned, so conservative, so fundamentalist, they'll say, these are just symbols, Jeff. Here's the point. I agree. I believe that they are. But anytime Jesus uses a symbol, the intensity of the reality is far greater than the symbol or word could ever describe. So you think I'm going to feel better when you tell me that fire is just a metaphor, when the reality would be more intense than fire? What's worse than fire? Why does Jesus use fire? Because fire represents the disintegration of life. When we grow up and we hear these metaphors, you know, I think of Dante's Inferno and reading all about the fire. I think of the old preacher, Jonathan Edwards in the 17th century that talks to us about we're all dangling over the pit and fire of hell and the flame is emerging, it's raging and we're just barely hanging on and the next sin, God is gonna cut the string and down we go. Even though I'll agree that those are metaphors, I do believe there's a reason he uses fire because fire is a place where things break down. When you put something into a fire, the thing itself does not actually cease to exist, does it? What happens then? The thing that connects it, the thing that holds it together, those bonds are broken down by the fire and it goes into pieces. The thing itself still exists, but it is in ruin now. The very purpose for which it is made, was made, is now destroyed. Hell is a place of disintegration. Now, I think I can describe this better with an illustration, so hold on, look up just a moment. When Robin and the kids and I were in New Zealand, we'd been there almost 10 years, we decided it was time for us, uh, God had called us to a new place. But we had been there 10 years and I had never taken the family down to see the South Island, and that's the most beautiful part of New Zealand. So we went down to see some of the, 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 the city centers, uh, drove through the rural areas, beautiful by the ocean, and we ended up in a place called Christchurch. And we're on a trolley in Christchurch, seeing the sights of the city. The trolley stops. We're on one side of the trolley. There's a, a, a group of people on the other side. There's an older lady there who gets out. She starts staring up through the window, and she says, oh my God, oh my God, not again, not again. And she was making reference so there was yet another teenager in New Zealand about ready to commit suicide, to jump off of this building, downtown Christchurch, which became, I found later, a, a, a common place for teenagers to jump and end her life. Traffic had stopped, so I couldn't move. I didn't want my children to see this. I moved them to the other side or, or asked them to stay on the other side. And I sat down and I began to think, New Zealand has the highest teenage suicide rate in the world. Why? It's not because of poverty. And I started thinking about this and I thought, man, this may, in a way, now be careful how you interpret this, in a way it made sense. You say, how could taking your life ever make sense? But wait a minute. New Zealand is aggressively anti-God. From day one, you grow up hearing this, even in elementary school, there is no God, there is no God. And anybody that believes in God is called a God-botherer and you're said to what? Be weak intellectually and you need something to help you make it through life. So right from day one, they learn there is no God. And here's my theory. New Zealand teenagers are a lot more smart than they're given credit for because they know if there's no God, there's no meaning, there's no purpose and there's no hope to life. 
That if you're here because of time plus matter plus chance, you're here by accident and there is no ultimate meaning. You might have tiny little meanings, but ultimately there is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no reason to live. You say, hold on a minute. And I know what a Kiwi would say. A professor would say, whoa, Jeff, listen, you don't have to have God to have meaning because there are pleasurable experiences in life to be enjoyed and you can move from one pleasurable experience to the next. Wait a minute, that may be good for you, but what about that little girl who grows up in a home where dad's an alcoholic, he's never home, where mom doesn't love her, where there's no love, there's no grace, there's no mercy. She moves from one bad moment to the next bad moment. Then she goes to school. She learns there's no God. She finds out there's no meaning, there's no purpose. I am useless. Would it not? be almost logical if your life is one painful moment to the next to end it. See, that's where God comes in and says, hold on a minute. There's a grand weaver. There's a grand designer. And everything that happens in your life, God is able to bring beauty and pattern and design out of the chaos of life and weave it all together to build you into something special. But if there is no God, there is no grand weaver. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no hope. Everything doesn't work together for the good if there's no God. Every time something bad happens to you, it's bad luck, mate. Wrong place, wrong time. See, this is why Jesus uses fire. It's a place of disintegration where things break down into pieces, down into its constituent parts, where things lose their coherence. In hell, you lose your connection with God and your very self becomes undone because you know there's no meaning, no purpose to your existence, no hope of change. There's ultimate depression, sadness, incoherence. You combine that with an eternal soul that's built to last forever, knowing that it's never gonna change. There's no reason to live, but you can't end it. You gotta keep on living because you're made to live forever in ultimate ruin. There's no reason to get up every day, no reason to exist, no recreation of any kind. There are no simple pleasures in hell. Why? Because God has gone. All your life, you said, I don't want God. I don't need God. Or apathetically, you did not pursue God. So God gives you the ultimate ramifications of your freedom that you expressed all your life. He puts you in a realm where God withdraws his presence. But remember, when God goes, everything good goes with him. Thank you for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. We'll continue with Pastor Jeff next time on the program as we continue to hear about hell. Is it a real place and should we care? All is in ruin, all is disintegrated. Here's the point. You cease to have value in hell. You have no value. It's meaningless. You have no purpose. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 